0: This is The Churches the World, Chapter 2, Episode 11, the second part of the Tower in Babel. Last week, I covered the area of Babel and the tower itself. This week, I'm delving into similar stories from around the globe and theories outside of the Bible on the origin of language. Finally, when I'm done with that exciting topic, I'll describe some forthcoming changes to the podcast. So let's get started there are several medieval accounts that attempted to explain the languages scattered at the Tower of Babel. The count of all the descendants of Noah listed by name in Genesis chapter 10 provides 15 names for Japheth's descendants, 30 for Hams, and 27 for Shem's. with these figures establishing the 72 languages resulting from the scattering at Babel, although the exact listing of these languages tended to vary over time. Some of the earliest sources for 72 languages are the 2nd century Christian writers Clement of Alexandria and Hippolytus of Rome. The chronicles attributed to Hippolytus in about AD 234 contain one of the first attempts to list each of the 72 peoples who were believed to have spoken these languages. Isidora of Seville, in his Etymology, written around AD 600, mentions the number of 72. But his list of names from the Bible drops the sons of Joktan and substitutes the sons of Abraham and Lot, resulting in only about 56 names total. Then he attaches a list to some of the nations known in his own day, such as the Longobards and the Franks. There are a number of traditions around the world that describe a divine confusion of the one original language into several, albeit without any tower. There is the ancient Greek myth that Hermes confused the languages, causing Zeus to give his throne to Phronius. Fraser, you might remember him from last week. He was a 20th century Scottish social anthropologist. I mentioned accounts among the Wasani of Kenya, the Kachanaga people of Assam, the inhabitants of Encounter Bay in Australia, the Maidu of California, the Tlingit of Alaska, and the Kichimaya of Guatemala. In the Book of Mormon, A man named Jared and his family ask God that their language not be confused at the time of the Tower of Babel. Because of their prayers, God preserves their language and leads them to the Valley of Nimrod. From there, they travel across the sea to the Americas. 20th century Muslim writer Yahya Emmerich argues that the Judeo-Christian belief of God separating humankind on the basis of language is unknown to Islam. In Islam, he argues, God created nations to know each other, and not to be separated. Yakut al Hamawi, a 12th-century Greek-Islamic writer, wrote of a story about Babel, but made no mention of a tower. In his writing, mankind were brought together into the area that was afterward called Babel, where they were assigned their separate languages by God, and then they were scattered again. ninth century Muslim theologian al-Tabari, in his The History of the Prophets and the Kings, tells of a story more similar to the account in Genesis, Nimrod has the tower built in Babel, God destroys it, and the language of mankind, formerly Syriac, is then confused into 72 languages. 13th century Muslim historian Abu al fida relates the same story, adding that the patriarch Eber, an ancestor of Abraham, was allowed to keep the original language Hebrew because he had not participated in the building of the tower. A few weeks ago, in the Flood story, I mentioned the indigenous inhabitants of the Adaman Islands in the Bay of Bengal. Remember, these people were essentially isolated until the 18th century. They described language as being given by the god Pugala to the first man and woman at their union following a great deluge. The language they were given is the language spoken today by the tribe inhabiting the south and southeastern portion of the Middle Adaman. This language is described by the inhabitants as the mother tongue from which all other dialects have been made. Their belief holds that even before the death of the first man, his offspring became so numerous that their home could no longer accommodate them. At Pugula's bidding, they were furnished with all the necessary weapons, implements, and fire, and then scattered in pairs all over the country. When this exodus occurred, Pugula provided each party with a distinct dialect. A group of people on the island of Hoa, in Polynesia, tell a very similar story to the Tower of Babel. Speaking of a god who, in anger, chased the builders away, broke down the building, and changed their language, so that they spoke diverse tongues. A similar story is described by the Kazakh Native Americans from northern British Columbia, in Canada. However, it combines the flood story with that of Babel. Before the flood, there was one center of population where all the people lived together and spoke one language, after the flood, the people became widely scattered all over the world and settled into many tribes with distinct languages. Various traditions similar to that of the Tower of Babel are found in Central America. Some writers connected the Great Pyramid of Cholula in Pueblo, Mexico, to the Tower of Babel. The 16th century Dominican friar Diego Duran claimed to have heard an account about the pyramid from a hundred year old priest at Cholula shortly after the conquest of Mexico. He wrote that he was told that when the light of the sun first appeared upon the land, giants appeared and set off in search of the sun. When they did not find it, they built a tower to reach the sky. This angered God, who called upon the inhabitants of the sky, who then destroyed the tower and scattered its builders. The story was not related to either a flood or the confusion of languages, although some have connected its construction and the scattering of the giants with the Tower of Babel. Another story, attributed to the native, 17th century Aztec historian Fernando de Alva Cortes Lilchita, to the ancient Toltecs, states that after men had multiplied following a great deluge, they erected a tall tower to preserve themselves in the event of a second flood. However, their languages were confounded, and they went to separate parts of the earth. According to Fraser, the Qaran people of Miramar in Southeast Asia showed a clear Abrahamic influence. They claim that their ancestors migrated to that part of the world after the abandonment of a great pagoda in the land of the Karini, a region in Burma and Thailand. The migration began 30 generations after Adam, at the same time as when the languages were confused and the Korean separated from the Karini. But it is to be understood that this migration was not over some great distance as the two regions are separated by a few hundred miles and just 1.6 times as many kilometers. Fraser also notes yet another story in the Admiralty Islands, where mankind's languages are confused following a failed attempt to build houses reaching to heaven. Overall, the Babel story is threefold. The first is to show what happens when people are disobedient, yet again. But the second is to explain the origin of the diverse world languages, and the third is to explain why people scattered everywhere, even further than they probably could have imagined. I haven't decided if I will tackle how, historically, people ended up everywhere, but I have touched on it in past episodes with the Arctic Land Bridge and a similar bridge from the Middle East into Africa. But, I will spend some time on the theories behind the origin of language. Within the human species, the origin of language has been the topic of scholarly debates for many centuries. But even with this, or possibly due to it, there is no consensus on the ultimate origin or age of human language. One problem makes the topic very difficult to study, and that is the lack of direct evidence. This is really a truism. Before there was language, nothing could have been recorded for prosperity. Then spoken language would have developed, and still nothing would have been recorded. In fact, this recording would only take place after written language had developed. Also, there is a distinction between speech and language. Language is not necessarily spoken it might alternatively be written or signed. Speech is among a number of different methods for encoding and transmitting linguistic information, albeit arguably the most natural one. But in the terms of historical development, it is generally believed that language was first spoken, then written. After all, this is how we all learned it as children. Consequently, scholars wishing to study the origins of language must draw inferences from evidence such as archaeological, contemporary language diversity, studies of language acquisition, and comparisons between human language and systems of communication existing among animals, especially primates. Many argue that the origins of language probably relate closely to the origins of modern human behavior, but there is little agreement about the implications of this connection. Modern linguistic study did not begin until the late 18th century with Johann Gottfried Herder and Johann Christoph Edelung, Their theories remained influential well into the 19th century. An increasingly systematic approach to historical linguistics developed in the course of the 19th century, reaching its culmination in the Neo-Grammarian school. I'm going to leave that one alone, as you would need to be a linguist to understand and appreciate it. The shortage of reliable empirical evidence has led many scholars to regard the entire topic as unsuitable for serious academic study. In fact, in 1866, the Linguistic Society of Paris banned any existing or future debates on the subject. Now, this was surprising to me. Here was a society dedicated to linguistics that throws up its hands and mandates that no further study on the origin of its subject should occur. That's a very profound statement. This prohibition remained effective across much of the Western world until late into the 20th century. Today, there are numerous hypotheses about how, why, when, and where language might have emerged. However, since the early 1990s, a number of linguists, archaeologists, psychologists, anthropologists, and others have attempted to address with new methods what some scientists considered the hardest problem in science. However, scholarly interest in the question of the origin of language has only gradually been rekindled from the 1950s on, with ideas such as universal grammar, mass comparison, in what is called glottochronology. You know, it should come as no surprise that linguists would have such a word to describe what it is that they do. The origin of language, sometimes referred to as evolutionary linguistics as a separate subject, emerged from studies in neurolinguistics, psycholinguistics, and human evolution. Research institutes dedicated to evolutionary linguistics are a recent phenomenon, emerging only in the 1990s. I'll return to these in a minute. But before we get too uptight about the phrase evolutionary linguistics, I need to point out that it is commonly accepted that our language, and languages in general, are constantly changing. Think no further back than the difference between the King James Version and the New Revised Standard Version. They both relied on very similar base text, but the specific language employed is very different. History contains a number of stories about people who attempted to discover the origin of language via experimentation. The first such account was told by Herodotus, a 5th century BC Greek historian. He related that the pharaoh Samomaticus, probably Samomaticus I, who lived in the 7th century BC, purposely had two children raised by a shepherd with instructions that no one should speak to them, but that the shepherd should feed and care for them while listening to determine their first words. When one of the children cried, Bekos, with outstretched arms, The shepherd concluded that the word was Phrygian because that was the sound of the Phrygian word for bread. From this, Semimaticus concluded that the first language was Phrygian. Phrygia was a kingdom in west-central Turkey that existed between 1200 and 700 BC. King James V of Scotland, in the 16th century, is rumored to have tried a similar experiment. In his trials, the children were supposed to have spoken Hebrew, Both the medieval monarch Frederick II, the 13th century Holy Roman Emperor, and Akbar, the 16th century Mughal Emperor in India, are said to have tried similar experiments as well. In these, the children involved never learned to speak. And while I haven't researched it, but I think I can state that no institutional review board would ever allow such an experiment today, so we'll just have to take their word for it. The search for the origin of language has a long history rooted in religion, Most religions do not credit humans with the invention of language, but speak of a divine language predating human language. I just recounted a few, but I'll leave you with one more. The Aztec story maintains that only a man, Cacox, and a woman, Jiucaza, survived a flood, having floated on a piece of bark. They found themselves on land and begot many children who were at first born unable to speak, but subsequently, upon the arrival of a dove, were endowed with language although each one was given a different speech so that they could not understand one another. So you may be wondering what the scientific community believes is the source of language, or maybe not. Most of their work is far too intricate for this podcast, but I'll walk you through a few of them. There are several different methods that researchers have used to approach the study of language origins. Continuity theories build on the idea that language exhibits so much complexity that one cannot imagine it simply appearing from nothing into its final form. Therefore, it must have evolved from earlier pre-linguistic systems among our ancestors. Discontinuity theories take the opposite approach, that language, as a unique trait which cannot be compared to anything found among non-humans, must have appeared fairly suddenly during the course of human history. Some theories see language mostly as an innate faculty, perhaps genetically encoded. Other theories regard language as mainly a cultural system, meaning that it is learned through social interaction. Noam Chomsky, a prominent proponent of discontinuity theory, argues that a single chance mutation occurred in one individual in the order of 100,000 years ago, instantaneously installing the language faculty, a component of the brain, in perfect or near-perfect form. According to this view, emergence of language resembled the formation of a crystal, with digital infinity as a seed crystal in a supersaturated early brain on the verge of blossoming into the human mind. By physical law, once evolution added a single small but crucial keystone. It follows from this theory that language appeared rather suddenly within the history of human evolution. A majority of linguistic scholars, as of 2015, hold continuity-based theories, but they vary in how they envision language development. Those who see language as a socially learned tool of communication view it developing from the cognitively controlled aspects of primate communication, these being mostly gestural as opposed to vocal. Because the emergence of language lies so far back in human prehistory, the relevant developments have left no direct historical traces. But one curious modern example of the development of language is the modern development of new sign languages. An example of that is Nicaraguan sign language. Before the 1970s, there was no deaf community in Nicaragua. In Nicaragua at the time, deaf people were largely isolated from each other and mostly used simple sign systems and gestures in their individual homes to communicate with their families and friends. The conditions necessary for a language to arise occurred in 1977, when a Center for Special Education established a program initially intended for 50 deaf children. The number of students at the school grew to 100 by 1979. In 1980, a vocational school for deaf children was opened in Managua, the capital of Nicaragua. By 1983, there were over 400 deaf students enrolled in two schools. In the beginning, the language program emphasized spoken Spanish and lip reading, and the use of signs by teachers was limited to what is called fingerspelling, which simply means using simple signs to sign the alphabet. The program achieved little success, with most students failing to grasp the concept of Spanish words. As you would expect, the children remained linguistically disconnected from their teachers. But in areas where they interacted with other deaf children, such as the schoolyard, the street, and the school bus, provided fertile ground for them to communicate. By combining the gestures and elements of their home sign systems, a pidgin-like form and creole-like language rapidly emerged. I'll go a little deeper into pidgin and creole in just a second. As it turned out, they were creating their own language, the first-stage pidgin is still used by many who attend the school today. Staff at the school, unaware of the development of this new language, initially thought the children's gesturing was simply miming and attributed it to their failure to learn Spanish. It didn't take too long, though, for the staff to recognize that they could be communicating. Unable to understand what the children were saying to each other, they sought outside help. In June 1986, The Nicaraguan Ministry of Education contacted Judy Kegel, an American Sign Language linguist from MIT. As Kegel and other researchers began to analyze the language, they noticed that the young children had taken the pigeon-like form of the older children to a higher level of complexity, with verb agreement and other conventions of grammar. This more complex sign language is now known as Idioma de Senas de Nicaragua. I guess language development may truly be the province of the young. Pigeons, and no, not the bird, are significantly simplified languages, with only rudimentary grammar and a limited vocabulary. In their early stage, pigeons mainly consist of nouns, verbs, and adjectives with few or no articles. Prepositions, conjunctions, or auxiliary verbs. Often the grammar has no fixed word order and the words have no inflection. Pigeons then develop into Creole languages with larger vocabularies, structures, and a more defined word order. Studies of Creole languages, and bear in mind that the use of the word Creole here is different from what the residents of Louisiana may think, but these studies of Creole languages from around the world have suggested that they display remarkable similarities in grammar and are developed uniformly from pigeons in a single generation, just like what was seen in Nicaragua. These similarities are apparent even when Creoles do not share any common language origins. Also, Creoles share similarities despite being developed in isolation from each other. Syntactic similarities include subject-verb-object-word order. Even when Creoles are derived from languages with a different word order, they often develop the subject-verb-object-word order. Now, this is very interesting to me, and I'm no linguistic expert, but it seems to suggest that there is an innate reason for this commonality between disparate language development. Creoles tend to have similar usage patterns for definite and indefinite articles, and similar movement rules for phrase structures even when the parent languages do not. Back to language origin. Evolutionists believe that the time range for the evolution of language began about 5 million years ago, but did not emerge into something recognizable until about 100,000 years ago. This is a very broad time range, and within that community there is much disagreement as to the hows and the whens. Joanna Nichols, a linguist at the University of California, Berkeley, used statistical methods to estimate that the time required to achieve the current spread and diversity in modern languages and concluded that vocal languages must have begun diversifying in our species at least 100,000 years ago. A further study by Quentin Atkinson, formerly of Oxford University, expanded on this and suggested that successive population bottlenecks occurred as people migrated from Africa to other areas, leading to a decrease in genetic and language diversity. Atkinson stated that these bottlenecks also affected culture and language, suggesting that the further away a particular language is from Africa, the fewer phonemes it contains. A phoneme is the smallest unit of speech that can be used to make one word different from another word. For example, the p, b. D and T, in the words pad, pat, bad, and bat. By way of evidence, Atkinson claims that today's African languages tend to have relatively large numbers of Fomives, whereas languages from areas in Oceania, believed to be the last place to which humans migrated, have relatively few. Relying heavily on Atkinson's work, a subsequent study has explored the rate at which Fomives develop naturally, comparing this rate to some of Africa's oldest languages. The results suggest that language first evolved around 350,000 to 150,000 years ago. Estimates of this kind are not universally accepted, but genetic, archaeological, paleontological, and other evidence has led researchers to believe that language probably emerged somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa during the Middle Stone Age. Or, it could have occurred spontaneously, as a lesson from God, as it's suggested in the Bible. When looked at through a scientific lens, the primary obstacle to the theory of evolution of language-like communication in nature is not a mechanical one. Rather, it is the fact that symbols, meaning the use of sounds to represent something completely different, are unreliable and may well be false. Animal vocal signals are, for the most part, fundamentally reliable. When a cat purrs, the signal constitutes direct evidence of the animal's contented state. We trust the signal, not because the cat is inclined to be honest, but because we don't believe it could or would fake that sound. Primate vocal calls may be slightly more manipulatable, but they remain reliable for the same reason, because they are hard to fake. And, if you will humor me for just a second, I think I just made up a word. And I did that in this episode on language, nonetheless. Further, the ability to make up new words is yet another feature of language. Back to the communication of primates. Primate social intelligence is considered Machiavellian, meaning it's self-serving and unconstrained by moral scruples. Monkeys and apes often attempt to deceive one another, while at the same time remaining constantly on guard against falling victim to deception themselves. Paradoxically, it is theorized that primates' resistance to deception is what blocks the evolution of their signaling systems along language-like lines. Language is ruled out because the best way to guard against being deceived is to ignore all signals except those that are instantly verifiable. Words automatically fail this test, as they are not instantly verifiable. In fact, words are easy to fake. Should they turn out to be lies, listeners will adapt by ignoring them in favor of hard-to-fake indices or cues. For language to work, then, listeners must be confident that those with whom they are on speaking terms are generally likely to be honest. A peculiar feature of language is what is called a displaced reference, which means reference to topics outside the currently perceptible situation. An easy example of this occurred when I conveyed the flood story to you. It was not occurring at the same time I was describing it. It occurred thousands of years ago. And when I described it, the Bible conveys that they were on the Ark for a year in total. That too was not occurring in the same time frame as when it was being described. But, on the other hand, your dog cannot seemingly communicate to you anything other than what is happening in the immediate. This displacement property prevents utterances from being corroborated in the immediate here and now. For this reason, language presupposes relatively high levels of mutual trust in order to become established over time as a stable strategy. This stability is born of long-standing mutual trust and is what grants language its authority. Displacement theory also relates to the so-called theory of mind, which is the ability to attribute mental states such as beliefs, intents, desires, pretending, or knowledge to yourself and others and to understand that others have beliefs, desires, intentions, and perspectives that are different from one's own. A theory on the origins of language must therefore explain why humans could begin trusting cheap signals in ways that other animals apparently cannot. This is generally called signaling theory. Now this theory is interesting, but perhaps a bit too deep and slightly unrelated to this podcast. But if you have a little time on your hands... Information concerning it is widely available in attempts to explain the difference between the honest signal of the coloring of a coral snake with the dishonest signal of the coloring of a king snake. These honest and dishonest signals also extend to the realm of language. And I never thought that I would say a snake was being honest, especially after the whole Eden incident. So even more than our use of tools, the use of language especially that to communicate concepts not easily attached to the specific immediate meaning is what separates us from the animals. Try to remember this next time you talk to your dog. Also separating us from other creatures is the ability to ask questions. This is considered by some to distinguish language from non-human systems of communication. Some captive primates, most notably bonobos and chimpanzees, have learned to use rudimentary signaling to communicate with their human trainers, and proved able to respond correctly to complex questions and requests. Yet, they have failed to even ask the simplest questions themselves. Conversely, human children are able to ask their first questions and even the more complex tasks of using only question intonation at the babbling period of their development, long before they start using syntactic structures. Although babies from different cultures acquire native languages from their social environment, All languages of the world, without exception, use the rising question-intonation for yes-no questions. This fact is strong evidence of the universality of question-intonation. There are many other hypotheses on the development of language, such as the mother-tongue's hypothesis, the obligatory reciprocal altruism hypothesis, and the gossip and grooming hypothesis. But these are just hypotheses, and will probably never be reliably proven. And such is the nature of science, where validatable proof is needed, but it by definition cannot be obtained. Because no proof can be obtained, these hypotheses cannot even be considered theories. And I think with validatable, I just created another word. And now, hopefully, you understand why the Linguistic Society of Paris considered it the hardest problem in science. So that's the episode for this week. But before I turn you loose, I want to address a few administrative details. This is the 19th published episode, and I have published weekly without fail for the past several months. Along the way, I have garnered many subscribers, and I appreciate every single one of you. To say I know more about podcasting now than when I began would be a massive understatement. From writing, to recording, to editing, to publishing, I am more efficient, hopefully more effective, and with better sound quality. Every week, the podcast gains a few more listeners, But knowing what I know now, I hate that they have to suffer through the first several episodes. So over the course of the next several weeks, I will be going back and reworking those episodes for better quality. But, like everyone, my time is finite. Thankfully, I am gainfully employed, which requires a large time commitment. At the same time, I am fully engaged in the rearing of my wonderful children. Therefore, while I rework the previous episodes, I will be releasing new material only every other week. That means that this episode is released on February 16th, 2016, and the next one will be on March 1st. If by chance you don't start listening until well after those dates, then this will have little impact on your binging. But for those of you listening in real time, I appreciate your patience, and remember that forbearance is a fruit of the Spirit. So with that, join me in two weeks, when we'll cover the ancient civilization of Sumer. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, The Churches the World, as four separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great two weeks.